Welcome to Going Deeper. My name is Marcy Sklove, and my guest today is Dr. Irvin Staub. Irvin is a professor of psychology emeritus at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. He's the founding director of the doctoral program on the psychology of peace and violence. He's most known for his works on the psychology of goodness as well as the psychology of mass violence and genocide. He was born in Hungary, received his PhD from Stanford, and later taught at Harvard University. Um, he has worked in many settings, both conducting research and applying his research and theory. He's worked in schools to raise caring and nonviolent children and to promote active bystandership by students in response to bullying. In the Netherlands, Irvin worked to improve the relations between the Dutch and the Muslims there. And in Rwanda, Burundi, and the Congo, he worked to promote healing and reconciliation using his work. Irvin has also written extensively about this work and we'll be talking about all of these things. Um, so, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Good. I usually like to start my interviews um, hearing about your early life. And in, in your case, your early life had a huge impact on the work that you later did, of course. And so I, I'd like to hear about this, you know, the story of your life, but also and how it informed your later work. Well, as you mentioned, I was born in Hungary just before the start of the war, the Second World War. Uh, Hungary was an ally of Germany, a voluntary ally of Germany. And so the discrimination against and the persecution of Jews started pretty early. In fact, it started even earlier than in Germany. Hmm. Wow. Um, then in 1944, March, mm -hmm. uh, because the Hungarian ruler realized that the war is being lost by Germany and its allies yeah. and was negotiating for a separate peace, the Germans moved into Hungary oh. and took over. And that's where the most intense persecution of Jews started. In, in, 44. in 1944. In the summer of 1944, Eichmann and 50 SS, with the help of many segments of Hungarian society, mm -hmm. gendarmes, police, and volunteers, gathered between 450 and 500,000 Jews, mm. put them into trains, and transported them to Auschwitz. Yeah. Uh, all this was first in the countryside. And we lived in Budapest, where it was not happening yet. Yeah. 
but then attention turned to Budapest. And uh, uh, Raul Wallenberg mm. was asked to come to Hungary. He was actually not a diplomat at that time. He was a partner in an export-import work mm -hmm. business with a Hungarian business partner. And on the, because of that, he came to Hungary a number of times. So he knew Hungary. He knew the relatives of this business partner. And it was initiated by the United States, which very hmm. late in the war established yeah. the Office of Refugee Affairs. Wow. It should have been established much earlier. And the people involved dragged their feet. And finally, some officials promised to go to the media and initiate a scandal. And in response to that, that office was established. And yeah. its first act was to ask somebody in Sweden, a neutral country, to go to Hungary. Okay. And they were going to ask Count Bernadette, but the Hungarians would not accept him. So then they asked Wallenberg, who was appointed a diplomat, came to Hungary, and with great courage and ingenuity, mm. he saved many, many lives. Yeah. Among those he saved was us. Yeah. Uh, we moved into a so-called protected house. And how old were you then? I was uh, six years old. Okay. Uh, we moved into a so-called protected house set up by Wallenberg. Yeah where people who had the protective passes that he created, which said that these people under the protection are under the protection of Sweden, and after the war they will be Swedish citizens, yeah. these people could move into those houses. Uh, now, they were only very... Ten, the protection was far from complete. Yeah. And there were raids on the house all the time, and oh. people were taken away. Uh, but my mother, my aunt, yeah. my sister and I, and my three cousins were there and survived the war wow. there. And my father, who was in a forced labor camp, mm. was taken to Germany with his whole group. Mm. And while they had a stay, stay over in Budapest, he escaped. Oh, my goodness. And he came to this house and the superintendent, who was Christian, allowed him into the house, and he was hiding there with us. And wow. he survived a couple of raids where these people who came, Hungarian Nazis, looked everywhere, every little corner, but they didn't find him. They didn't find him. And uh, uh, while we were in this house, this woman who worked for my family. Yeah, I want to hear uh, about her. Who was, I think of her as my second mother. Yeah. She came to live with my family before I was born, and she was the last surviving member of that generation. Mm. In 1991, she died. Yeah. Uh, she would prepare dough, take it to a bakery, uh, have it baked, then brought it back. But didn't just prepare the dough and take it. She took it in a, a pram, a baby stroller, That's right? That's right. She took it in Hidden. a baby carriage, pushed yeah. it in a baby carriage. Under a blanket. Yes. And yeah. then when it was baked, brought it back. And at some point, she was stabbed mm. by Hungarian Nazis, made her stand at the wall with her hands up for several hours, 
told her that they are going to kill her because she was helping Jews. Yeah. But this was all in the neighborhood where we used to live. And she was known quite well by many people in that neighborhood. So some guy who was also a Nazi came in, saw her standing there, knew who she was, and told the other people to let her go. Wow. And she came back to our protected house, and she started to do the same thing. Now, again. did the, the second Nazi know that she was helping your family? That guy there? The, 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 the guy who helped her get out of that situation? I am sure he did, he because did. I am sure that the people who were there okay. told wow. him. And they let her go saying, don't you dare to have Jews again. Yeah. Which she continued, continued to do. Continued, sure. So we survived the war. The Russian troops came in in January to that area in January 1945, and they liberated us. And uh, you know, after a while, we moved back to our mm -hmm. apartment, which was a total mess because first we were told that the Germans used this as a kind of headquarters. It was a fairly large apartment. And then the Russians used it, and the Russians, it was on the mezzanine, and the Russians apparently took horses up the mezzanine and into the ah. apartment. So the flooring had all these gouges in it. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, we survived. We were yeah. alive. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, you know, the subject matter of your work, which is looking at and understanding how these horrible acts of genocide happen and the evil, how, how does evil happen and what are the, the characteristics and all of the, you know, different parts to that but then also what creates the positive, you know, active bystander or this woman who was part of your, you know, who helped your family? What is it that creates that, that kind of bravery, that kind of courage, uh, that kind of moral, you know, a sense of morality? So can you speak a little bit about how you got those questions in your mind from your experience as a little boy? Well, you know, when horrible things happen, often people need some time before they engage with that. Sure. And I thought very little about the Holocaust between 1956 when I escaped from Hungary okay. after the revolution there. And during my time in graduate school at Stanford, mm -hmm. in the department, hmm. who became a friend of mine, started to tell me about the research that he and a couple of his friends were doing on rescuers. This was the first research ever done okay. on rescuers, on people in Nazi Europe, yeah. not only Germany, but all the Through European Denmark. countries. I know about that Denmark, in Denmark. And Poland, and yeah. anywhere. Wow. Who 
once it was clear that a genocide was taking place, that the Jews were targeted for extermination, mm -hmm. these people attempted to help. Yeah. They would hide people. They would sometimes, if they could move people from one area to another safer area. And in the course of this, they endangered their lives. They endangered their children's lives. Sure. Uh, so this was a really amazing thing. And he was doing this work. And so I started to think about wanting to understand what leads people to care about and help others. Mm -hmm. And when I finished my graduate studies and then I went to Harvard and I started to do my own research, on a very small scale, first, I started to work on these questions. I studied what leads people to share with others, children to share with others. Mm. I began to study what leads people in an emergency, when somebody is in great need suddenly yeah. to attempt to help yeah. or to remain passive. Right. And, uh, you know, like I studied, for example, whether children become more helpful with age. Hmm. And I assumed they would, of course. <laughs> I also studied whether they would have more as individuals or in pairs. Because preceding the work that I started to do, there were these studies that became famous by two psychologists, Donald and Latinay, that said that when there are more people present in an emergency, mm -hmm. when somebody has an accident or something is going wrong for someone, the larger the number of people present, the less likely any one person will help. That makes sense to me. Well, I was curious. Are children like that? Yeah. And what I found that with very young children, this doesn't happen. Huh. In kindergarten and in first grade, when children are together in pairs, mm -hmm. they don't do what adults do, which is to put on a poker face in public and act as if nothing was happening. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you look around and see everybody looking as if nothing was happening, you think, oh, well, nothing to worry about and you don't take action. Right. Well, the kids instead start to say things to each other. Oh, that sounds bad. Yeah. Um, or or what's, what do you think is happening? And then they join together yeah. and check out what's going on. So one of the things that I learned in the course of a series of studies that teaching children rules of no everyday conventional behavior you don't go into another room in a strange setting. You don't stop working on a task when you are told to work on a task. Inhibits helping. Children are taught these conventional rules, but they are not taught that under certain circumstances there are more important values that come into play. Mm. And that, in fact, they should ignore those rules under those circumstances right. and follow these important values. Right. So one of the things that is really important is to teach children these important values. And okay. not only to teach them these important values, but to help them act accordingly, to guide them to act accordingly. So uh, 
I did later a series of studies in which we got children to actually engage in helping and then looked at their later helping. Yeah. By that time, I believe that children and adults learn by doing. That if we engage in helpful behavior yeah. and there are no powerful influences to stop us, then we become more concerned about the welfare of others whom we help. Right. We come to see ourselves as helpful people and we are more likely to help again. And that's what we found. Wow. When we got children to make toys for poor hospitalized children, when we got older children to teach younger children, which is a form of helping, sure. we found that these kids were later more helpful. Interesting. So learning by doing. Yeah. Modeling, the example of others, right. is extremely important. You know, if people are hypocrites, <laughs> parents are hypocrites, they tell children that you should help, but they and themselves they don't. don't. One of the things that is likely to happen, as some research shows, is that they are likely to learn to talk as the adults wow. and also act as the adults. Sure. So they advocate helping in words, but they don't engage in helping right. themselves. Uh, so, you know, you asked also about moral courage. Yeah. Uh, I mean, promoting good values is important because in order to have moral courage, you have to have moral values, sure. right? And caring values, you know, people yeah. sometimes differentiate between morality and caring. And caring values, which are also emotionally based, that is you, based on empathy, based on an emotional engagement with other people and their welfare, are important to promote in words and by guiding children to action. You know, uh, modeling is important. But moral courage involves the willingness to initiate action according to one's moral and caring values when there is likely to be opposition yeah. and potential negative consequences. Right. So children have to come to trust their own judgment. Wow, and not be afraid of getting punished for doing what right. they Right, I mean, they have to learn, you know, what is so unsafe yeah. that you don't want to do that. Uh, but within a very broad range, they have to learn to use their judgment, which means that parents and teachers in school have to allow them to participate right. in decision-making, right. have to oh, allow boy. them to express what they think and express their values. Uh, so participating in decisions for the family, in rules for the classroom, and all of these things, and engaging in the discussion around these things are all really important yeah, yeah. in contributing. This is just so totally fascinating because I'm trying to bring it into the sort of the context of Amherst right here and now. So in our town, there's a big discussion about 
schools for children. And there's a, a possibility, I don't know if you've heard about it, of creating new schools, one that would just be for uh, pre-kindergarten through second grade, and the other schools would be from second grade to sixth grade. So uh, then you lose that opportunity to be modeling and showing the younger students you know, I'm thinking that that might be a, a bad, you know, a, a, a not a good plan in this context. So that's one way I'm thinking about applying this work locally here. And another thing I'm thinking about that I'm questioning is if you come from a group that is historically oppressed, you know, it, let, let's say, let's say you're an African-American child in the Amherst school system. Now, you're, you know, you are going to be treated differently if you stand up to a teacher or to an authority figure who is not doing the right thing. And how do you compensate for the kids that would be in that circumstance where they don't have necessarily the parents who could then go and uh, advocate for them and, you know, on and on because of a, of a sense of oppression that they feel already. Well, you know, about this last thing, really good training of teachers is extremely important. And really good training should also include the development of self-awareness on the part of teachers. Oh, definitely. I mean, there are, you know, we all vary a great deal. And some teachers, when a child speaks out, would see disobedience right. and resistance and all these things. And because of who they are and their own experience in life may react very negatively to right. that. So to become aware of this and to work with this and to deal with this, I mean, I'm just going to say this as an aside that I have done work with police mm. to develop trainings in active bystandership for police officers in relation to other police officers. Wow. And one of the things about police officers is that when somebody doesn't do what they want, what they say, then they, many of them take it as a tremendous challenge yeah. to their authority and to themselves. And right. that's one of the causes. If you look at many instances of violence Absolutely. by police, that's one of the causes. Somebody running away from you, somebody not getting out of a car when you tell them, Sandra, I don't remember her last name, yeah. uh, somebody just speaking back to you, yeah. talking back to you. Same thing in many realms and same sure. thing with teachers. So on the one hand, teachers need to develop this kind of self-awareness so that they see themselves when something goes on and they are able to make better decisions. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, develop sensitivities for one thing to the culture of a particular group of kids. You know, an African-American child, every family is a different culture. Mm -hmm. And 
some subcultures have their own values and rules. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the examples that I like to use is that uh, white teachers used to respond quite negatively to Mexican-American children uh -huh. who, uh, when they reprimand them, don't look at the teacher, but look down. And they take that. Oh. The literature indicates that they take that as a kind of defiance. Oh, interesting. But actually, that's what they are taught in their culture. Sure. That when an adult, adult reprimands you, you don't look. You don't, you don't look contact, them in the eye. You look down. That's disrespectful. So to to yeah. learn some of these things and then let them practice, teachers, mm -hmm. how they feel and how they react when a student challenges them in within the bounds of sure. reason and acceptability, right. but challenges them. Let them be aware, let them role play, let them rehearse, let them observe their own emotional reactions, and let them find the most constructive way that they can respond to it, right. including sometimes praising that child, saying, that's really, I'm impressed that you are able to express what you believe in under these circumstances. Yeah, yeah. There's so much, uh, there's so much here, and we're actually winding down on part one, Okay, time-wise. Well, maybe in part two, I can talk about genocide and mass violence. Yes, we're gonna get to that. Um, but. Thank you for being here, and we're going to continue and uh, join us for part two of Going Deeper. Thank you. Thank you.